Since this series is going to start in Poland, I think it's worth it to start with the words of Józef Piłsudski, the great Polish revolutionary statesman and one of the founders of the Second Republic. One who doesn't respect and value his past is not worth the honor of the present and has no right to a future. Well, I promise you that I respect and value the past, and I please God, would love to see honor in the present, and I know that all of us have a right to the future. I'm Rob Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story. Episode 1, A New Homeland. So our last series actually ended with the expulsion from Spain. I apologize if you were expecting to pick right up where we left off, and if you're disappointed to know that we're going to go a little bit backwards and somewhat to the east. Don't worry, we will follow the exiles, as well as the conversos who have to take their identity underground and are going to play a critical role in bringing Am Yisrael into the early modern period that lies ahead of us. But for now, we're following the momentum of their story, if not the actual characters. Because mobility is going to be definitive of the human experience in general and the Jewish experience in particular in the coming period. And before the events of 1492 and Columbus sailing the ocean blue, which scattered Spanish Jewry literally to the four corners of the globe, now that they know it is actually a globe, there was a more gradual but equally significant shift amongst the Ashkenazi Jews, whose heartland, of course, was in Germany. And this is a pattern you can trace throughout Jewish history. Before the destruction of the Second Temple and the dispersion of the third century of the Common Era, Babylon had already begun to rise as a new home that could absorb the exiles. Go back and listen to the earlier episodes of Series 1. And as the Babylonian academies were losing their status as the living center of Judaism in the you know, 11th, 12th century, soon to be destroyed by the Mongols, Spain was already thriving. And now... As we take a step back in the linear flow of time, we can see that the emergence of Poland as an up-and-coming home for Am Yisrael preceded the expulsion from Spain. Now, we spoke long ago about the names of Svarad and Ashkenaz, the names the Jews gave to Spain and Germany in particular, and how each one served to ground Jewish life in Spain and German lands in a mythic but biblical past. They served to keep the Jewish story unified with the past of the Jewish people and put these new locations on the map, so to speak, in a cultural sense. So that doesn't actually happen with Poland. Because, you know, the legend says that a group of exiled Jews wandering their way out of the German lands supposedly crossed the Polish border at some point, and they heard a divine echo from the heavens which said to them, Polin, which in Hebrew means, dwell here. Others say, actually, it said, Polanya, here God dwells. Those are both Hebrew versions of the name in which Jews came to call Poland. And in many ways, this is going to define the nature of Jewish life in Poland. It's an existence that began unquestionably as a safe harbor, and anyone who knows a bit of Jewish history knows that it ends in flames. But that horror actually is centuries ahead of our story, and I'm going to strive not to let it color the entire tale too much. But Safe Harbor, it indeed was. It was also, eventually, one of the greatest flowerings of Jewish culture and Torah in 2,000 years of exile, which in its own Ashkenazi way rivaled that of Spain. But there's no Pauline in the Bible. Something has shifted. 
Now, the culture that these Jews brought with them was that of Ashkenaz. And we're going to speak about the nature of that shortly, but we're no longer seeking the roots of this new refuge in our biblical, mythic past. I think that a certain self-awareness, a self-consciousness even, about exile has set in, and that in many ways carries the seeds of its end. Now, its end can come in a couple of ways, whether it's through actual movement toward the homeland, as we'll see eventually in the rise of Zionism, or a cultural rejection that there's anyone anywhere else that we belong anyway. Remember, exile is rooted in the sense that I am not where I belong. And therefore, there's two ways to get out of it, to go home or to accept where I am. Now, the germination of these two seeds is going to have to wait for hundreds of years until we come to the modern era. But when they sprout, the soil of Polish Jewry is going to be very rich indeed. But for now, a story. It's actually a story from the Gemara, from the Talmud. But Rav Shmuel Eliezer ben Yehuda Halevi Edels, it's a wonderful name, isn't it? Right? Great mid-16th to early 17th Torah teacher, also known as the Maharsha, for those of you who spent a little time in the Gemara, was convinced that this was a relevant story to the phase of Polish exile, or at least the idea of exile in general. So the Gemara in Baba Batra 73b says that Rabba Barbar Khanna taught, once we were traveling on a ship, we saw a certain fish on which sand had settled and grass grew on it. Now, we assumed it was dry land. We went up and baked and cooked on the back of the fish. But when its back grew hot, it turned over. And if it weren't for the fact that our ship was close by, we would have all been drowned. It's part of a series of very strange stories there in Baba Batra. But as the Maharsha understands the story, he says that this is talking about the Persian period and the time of the story of Purim and the Megillah. And the Jews were wandering in the Sea of Exile. He says, in, came yam hakalut, in the depths of the Sea of Exile. But when they found this great fertile plain of the Persian Empire, they thought they'd finally found solid ground. And they forgot that they were in exile. Svurim him, he says. They thought, the Yabashtahava that they'd reached dry land and there was no exile anymore. But the events of the Purim story and Haman's attempt to destroy the entire Jewish people reminded them that indeed exile wasn't over. And we're going to trace centuries of a relatively secure and confident and deeply rich life for Polish Jewry on what they thought was dry land. But in the end, Polish Jewry is also going to have to discover that their refuge wasn't dry land at all, but rather was Be'imkemetsulot Yam Hagalut, the depths of the heart of the Sea of Exile. But like I said, that chapter lies far ahead. For now, Pauline, here we stay. So, a little bit of background. Probably the first Jew ever to see Poland was Ibrahim ibn Yaqub, which may not sound like a Jewish name to you, but he was an emissary sent by the Caliph of Cordoba, if you recall that period of Spanish Muslim, what we'll call Al-Andalusian Jewry. He was sent as an emissary in the 10th century from the Caliph to the Holy Roman Emperor Otto I. Now, he reports that he kept journals, but they were lost. However, his description of Poland does live on in Abu Abdullah ibn Bakri's 11th century work, The Book of Highways and Kingdoms, and it's considered to be the first reliable report of the Kingdom of Poland. 
We know from the archaeology that by the early 11th century, it's only 100 or so years later, that there were some Jewish communities in Poland, but we don't know whether they were permanent settlements. But as the Crusades began to savage the Ashkenazi heartland of the Rhine River Valley, the Jews began slowly but surely to seek shelter in the east. There is clear archaeological record of Jews in western Poland in the 12th and 13th century, and in fact, the earliest known Polish coins were minted, at least so say the coins, in 1206, and they actually bear Hebrew inscriptions, presumably because the mint masters were actually Jews. And this is one of the major reasons that the Jews were invited and indeed welcomed into Poland, because they were able to take what was a relatively economically backward and agriculturally based kingdom and add to it their commercial knowledge. And in fact, in the year 1264, Duke Boleslaw the Pious issued what's known as the Statute of Kalis. It's a general charter of Jewish liberties in Poland. 46 chapters of new rights, and it was revolutionary for Europe of his day. There are many pieces in it, but for our story, what's critical is that it grants the Jews complete legal jurisdiction over matters that were solely involving Jews, and even created a special court to deal with Jewish-Christian disputes. This gives us one of the two critical elements for the flowering of culture, which we recognize from our past. It's autonomous Jewish courts. Right? Eventually, Jews will become what's known as a nation within a nation in Poland. And the autonomous courts are an absolute critical element in that. The second piece, which will combine with these courts, is going to be geographic concentration. Lots of Jews living close together. And when lots of Jews live close together and they have courts that allow them to adjudicate their own life, then the Torah and general Jewish culture in its wake will flower. And that is indeed what happens in Poland. So the population began to concentrate, as I said, with the Crusades. And when, in the year 1334, King Casimir the Great actually extended the privileges of the Statute of Kalis to all of Poland, he opened the door to an influx that was driven by a string of disasters from the Black Plague in the mid-14th century through the Hussite Wars that we'll discuss which ravaged Central Europe in the 15th. Now, Casimir is remembered in Jewish and Polish history not just as a friend of the Jews, but even as a lover. In the 15th century, much about 100 years or so after his death, the Polish chronicler Jan Lukos, and please forgive me, I'm sure I said that wrong, he records the legend of, um, of Esterka, who was reputed to be Casimir's Jewish mistress. And she's said to have used her influence over the king to persuade him to allow the Jews, and in fact to invite them, to settle in Poland and give them extensive rights and privileges. You know, the chronicles add that the king actually had four children by Esterka, two boys and two girls. The former, the boys, were raised as Christians, but the latter as Jews. This idea in the Christian kingdoms of Europe is more outrageous than any of the political or economic or legal rights that were granted to the Jews. The notion that a Christian king would allow his children to be raised as Jews. And even if it's not true, it tells you the very special nature of the relationships between Jew and Poland. So just a couple of numbers to make it clear. In 1500, the Jews were less than half a percent of the Polish population. But by 1672, they were about 2.5%. And by 1765, almost 5.5%. And that absolute number, most historians agree, is around... 750,000. That's a lot of Jews. And furthermore, the proportions show that the Jewish population was growing substantially faster than the general population increase. So the Jews spread out, and they became merchants, 
moneylenders, tax collectors, innkeepers, and the role of the Jews in the liquor trade in Poland is something that we're going to have to look into. And you should know that because of their tendency to concentrate in the towns, even though the Jews were never really more than about, at this point at least, 5.5% by the mid-18th century of the population, often they were half of the urban population, which had a tremendous impact on the culture. So that's the big picture. But as we all know, the devil's in the details, and the devil will be in the background of our story. I'm sorry, I just can't avoid it, though it's going to take a while for him to come out. And remember, the 15th century Polish proverb, which of course you know, Poland was heaven for the nobles, hell for the peasants, and paradise for the Jews. It's a little strange. I think that if I stop the average Jew on the street and ask them to play free word association with Poland, after we got past the Holocaust connection, we might just come to Yiddish. And the power of Yiddish as a cultural force will take up in a later episode when it really reaches its height. But for now, we're in the mode of searching for origins. And you might think that linguistic archaeology, the attempt to unearth the origins of a language, is just about as exciting as watching paint dry, but you should know that there are a lot of scholars who get quite hot under the collar when it comes to the question of where does Yiddish come from. Now, I'm going to give you the mainstream consensus, but you should know that there are minority opinions that which range from simply radical to downright anti-Semitic, because if you ask what the origins of Yiddish are, you're actually asking what the roots of European Jewish culture would be. So, if you ask a Jew whose family comes from Poland, and frankly, whose family comes from almost anywhere in Eastern Europe, what type of Jew is, the answer you're most likely to get is Ashkenazi. But you, who've been tuning in to the entire first series of The Jewish Story, and if you haven't, you press pause, go back and listen to all 30 episodes, you know, but you know that the Ashkenazi culture actually has its origin in Germany and northern France, and not in Poland. But in Poland, this idea of being Ashkenazi actually becomes a cultural designation rather than a geographic one. And the language of this culture is Yiddish. In general, linguists believe that over the course of about a hundred years, back in classic Ashkenaz in Germany, Yiddish went from being an early German dialect to a full-fledged language that incorporated ultimately bits of Hebrew, Aramaic, some of the Slavic languages, Romance languages. But it really began when the smile went out of Ashkenazi Jewry. In the aftermath of the Crusades, an attitude of collective isolation began to settle over German Jewry. And even though much of the archaeology and the cultural record tells us that in practice the Jews lived a life almost entirely mingled with their Christian neighbors, the tension that dominated the communal relationships encouraged the emergence of a specifically Jewish dialect of German. That allowed for a degree of separation within the Jews and intra-Jewish communication, even in situations where the logistics of village life meant you were living cheek and jowl. So, to give you an example, the Yiddish word for a non-Jew is a shegetz, which is a bit of a corruption of the Hebrew word sheretz. A sheretz is a creepy, crawly thing. Now, aside from the sort of offensive nature of that designation, why would the Jews be calling the non-Jews a shegetz? Because the whole point of the Torah is a sheretz is something that you don't mingle with. And thus... It became the designation for non-Jew in Yiddish when the German origins were insufficient to supply the need. So here we have a modified version of medieval German, 
which includes elements of Old French, Biblical, and Rabbinic Hebrew, and even Aramaic, which came to be the primary language of Western European Jews, talking about German heartland. But as the move to Poland eastward begins, elements of the Slavic languages begin to become incorporated. And by the 16th century, actually, when Poland was fast becoming the center of world Jewry, a divide actually emerged between Eastern and Western dialects of Yiddish. If you happen to be a Yiddish aficionado, you can figure out which one is your favorite. But for our purposes, you should just know that it is the core language of Polish Jewry. And the Polish Jews really lived what we would call a diglossic life. Many, many, if not most, spoke Yiddish and only Yiddish. They also used for their scholarly and religious purposes Hebrew, and a small minority actually spoke the local languages. It's also interestingly at this period that Yiddish becomes a written language in addition to a spoken one. It was written in Hebrew characters, just like Judeo-Arabic had been, and the act of forcing the sort of multitude of local Yiddish dialects into one written language will have a powerful impact on the creation of a pan-European Jewish culture, and a culture that is going to be accessed by the average person, and not just the rabbinic scholarly class, and we're going to keep our eye on that dynamic, this sort of broadening of the people who participate in the cultural dialogue. Now remember, this is the exact era in which print technology actually emerges in Europe, and it's therefore beginning the process of creating national languages out of all the diverse dialects all over the continent. I mean, how many versions of German were spoken in what we today call Germany, ditto French in France, etc.? You can have multiple spoken dialects, but you can only have one written if you want to unite people as an audience to consume your books. So Gutenberg prints his famous Bible in 1455, and it, of course, was in Latin. But Martin Luther, who we will speak about at length at the right time, finished his German translation in 1534, and through it, he made a significant contribution to the development of modern German so the earliest Yiddish printed books actually appear in Krakow, of course, in Poland, in the year uh, 1534 or 35. And interestingly enough, Merkevesa Mishnah is, is the first. It's a Hebrew-Yiddish glossary of the Torah, together with a, several ethical works. You know, for instance, Azoris Noshim, that's admonitions for women. And you can get a sense of who the audience of these Yiddish works was, and people who wanted to read the simple text of the Torah, and people who were being admonished, meaning it was a much more broad-based popular culture than the Hebrew works that had been written by scholars for hundreds of years. Now, even though the height of Yiddish culture lies well ahead in our story, and we'll come to it eventually, you need to appreciate that even though it begins as this sort of modest dialogue of German Jewry and is transported eastward in their migrations, at its height in the late 19th and early 20th century, Yiddish will be spoken by 11 million of the world's 18 million Jews. And for most of them, it was actually their primary language. So the German Jews brought their language with them when they migrated east, and it served for a good four centuries as the base of their culture, but it wasn't just the language they brought. It was their customs as well. Now, custom, minhag in Hebrew, is a strange beast. Because there's a tension in the idea that we do what we do because it's always done. 
On one hand, it provides a tremendous space for cultural continuity and for an identity which can be absorbed rather than having to be sort of awkwardly learned. On the other hand, if we do what we do because it's what we always did, well, then change doesn't come easy. And when it does come, it comes together almost by definition with a break in cultural continuity. The way we say this in Hebrew is you can say that minhag Israel Torahi, that what the Jewish people do as their established custom is the Torah. Or, as Rabbeinu Tam said, minhag otiot gehinom, that if you take the Hebrew letters, mem, yud, nun, hey, gimel, minhag, and you rearrange them, you can spell gehinom, meaning hell, right? Because there's something very holy about the established behavior of generations, and yet there's something quite dangerous about it as well. In general, the Jews see law as manifesting itself in two forms. There's the written sources and there's the lived tradition. And these are both sources of guidance and authority on how Jews meant to live their life in the world. And sometimes they come into conflict. Now, today we live a very text-based life. So you might think that push comes to shove, the written sources will always have the upper hand. But you would be wrong because in truth, particularly in the late Middle Ages, we see that the written word is often reread in light of traditional behavior. I mean, text is eminently flexible, and particularly in Ashkenaz. Many, many episodes ago, we touched on the tension between the Gaonim of Babylon and the religious leadership of the land of Israel in around about the 10th century, and how the Gaonim were the masters of the analytical, halachic, legal method, and therefore, ultimately, the masters of the textual approach to authority, while the practice in the land of Israel actually gave precedence to established custom. And we know that Ashkenazi culture, which we're now talking about being transported to Poland, actually took its dedication to custom from its roots in the custom of the land of Israel. So, in general, why is custom so important to our story right now? Because rupture is unsettling, especially to traditional society. And the ability to do things just like my fathers did isn't just some source of comfort. It's a powerful principle for the reconstruction of identity. Now, in traditional societies, religious life may nominally be guided by the masters of texts. But for most people, they live what's called a mimetic tradition. They do what they do because that's how they saw it done. And authority always comes with age in a traditional society. Another way of saying this is that the present receives its legitimacy from the past. So therefore, it's only natural to keep doing things the way they've always been done, even if you don't know why. I'll give you an example. Very few people who traveled from the German lands to Poland could have told you how much exactly one must drink in order to fulfill the commandment of Kiddush, of sanctifying the Sabbath day over a glass of wine. And that's not because it wasn't recorded in books, but because it was irrelevant. Most of them were simply drinking from the same cup their father had drank from, from their father's father and their father's father's father. And you can't tell me that no man in my family for the last eight generations has done Kiddush properly. But when the riots came in the wake of the Black Plague in the mid-14th century, and the pace of migration from Germany to Poland began to pick up, could be somewhere in that rough century, your kiddush cup was left behind or burned to the ground with the rest of your house. And now, what do you do 
in the new Ashkenazi homeland of Polin. So the customs of Ashkenaz were actually successfully transplanted to Poland, but the authenticity through which they were able to establish authority, the way in which they were able to claim legitimacy of the weight of the past, was actually largely in the form of a book. Rav Yaakov ben Moshe Halevi Molin, who's also known as the Maharil, was born in the city of Mainz, that's the German Rhineland, heartland of Ashkenaz, in the year 1360 in the secular calendar. And the Maharil was poised near the end of the period that we call the period of the Rishonim, which literally means the first ones, and uh, we think of them also as the medieval authorities. And we're going to have to talk about the distinction between the Mishonim, the first ones, and the Achronim, the latter ones. And we'll do that, actually, when we delve into the great act of codification of the 16th century, which is known as the Shuchan Aruch, the set table. But for now, it's just important to know that the dislocation of the 14th century and into the mid-15th was considered by later authorities to have deeply weakened the integrity of the Masora. Masora in Hebrew means tradition, but it literally means something which is handed on. And by as something which is handed on, there needs to be a continuity. Again, there's this mimetic element to tradition. It's not just what's written down in the book that we adhered to. It's something that we've seen done over and over so that when we do it again, it's not just a technical act, but it's an expression of identity. By the way, it's, it's beyond the issue of technical act. Just think about how hard it is to actually describe behavior in words. If you don't believe me, go try to write down a step-by-step process of how you would tie your shoes and then show it to one of your children who doesn't know how yet and see if they succeed. So the Maharil is perhaps the last in the chain of Rishonim, of these early authorities, who's looked at as a completely authentic source of the Masora. And because of that, he's going to play a critical role in establishing both custom and law in the new Ashkenaz homeland, even though he himself never makes it there. The Maharil actually led German Jewry during one of its most difficult periods, and that's the periods of the Hussite Wars. It was the last major crusade by the Catholic Church and various European monarchs behind them to stamp out non-Catholic Christian worship within Central Europe. And as was true for most of the wars of Europe, it was bad news for the Jews, but not by and large because of the Hussites themselves. Very interesting, Jan Hus was a Bohemian priest who denounced the corruption of the church and the papacy in particular, and promoted generally certain reformist ideas. He's a precursor and an important one to the whole Protestant Reformation, another movement which is on the horizon of our story. But you know what? It's not always so good to be a man ahead of your time, because in the year 1415, he was declared a heretic and burned at the stake. Now, his followers, the Hussites, were seen by the church as a Judaizing sect. And as we know from Catholic history, there's no worse label than that. This was largely because they embraced the Old Testament and rejected the cults of saints and icons. And they were also, as I said, deeply critical of the church hierarchy and its corruption. So therefore, they were ruthlessly pursued. Now, for our larger story, in addition to being part of the shift toward a multipolar Christianity, which is really what Reformation will do, right? in addition to that, the Hussites also planted a very small but important seed of change in European attitudes toward the Jews. 
That's because one of their leaders, Matthias of Janov, taught that the Antichrist was going to be Catholic and not Jewish, as had been the opinion of many medieval Christians. Because the Hussites saw history as a struggle between Christ and Antichrist, which was not uncommon in Catholic thought, but the Jews now have no part in this struggle. And this will have a deep impact on the Protestant movements and their positioning of themselves as primarily struggling against the Catholic Church and not with the Jews. So we're going to discuss the whole broader cultural space which opens up for the Jews in early modern Europe. If not because of this, it was certainly contributes to it, but we'll discuss that in coming episodes. For now, you should know that the church launched five waves of crusades against the Hussites, and they were held off all the way to the end. You know, they had these tremendously innovative tactics that I'm very tempted to get into right now, but it's not really part of our story. But you should know that they also were the first to use handheld firearms in any extensive way in European history. And these wars raged from 1419 to 1434, brought untold misery on the Jews of Ashkenaz, who were then creeping their way from the German homeland all the way to Poland. And it really represents a turning point in that shift toward the east of Jewish culture. And by the way, the Jews were not targeted in particular, I want to be clear. The truth is, it was miserable for everyone in this region. And the story says that in late summer of 1421, the armies of the Holy Roman Empire, supplemented by plenty of mercenaries, gathered at the city of Saz, and the surrounding Jewish communities were continually harassed and threatened, and they feared that a massacre was imminent. So they turned to the Maoriel, begging him to intercede with God. He, in turn, sent out messages to every Jewish community he could reach, and he proclaimed a public fast, ordering all Jews over 20 years of age to fast for three consecutive days, day and night, starting the day after Shabbat Breshit, the first Shabbat of the year. The fast was to have the same degree of severity as Yom Kippur. This is the big time. And of course, everyone obeyed. In fact, some German communities were so taken with this can, they actually fasted for seven days, according to their tradition. And soon afterwards, the imperial army and the mercenaries dispersed, and the very soldiers who had threatened the Jews now came to them begging for bread. Now, despite this story, and many other acts of piety that are attached to his name, the Maril is best known for his chief work, Sefer HaMaril, the Book of the Maril, or simply Minhagim, the Customs. Because in general, the Maril frowned on any changes, and his work demands absolute obedience to the time-honored observances of Ashkenaz, of the German heartland, even down to the liturgical melodies that were used at the synagogue. He himself dies in Worms, in the heartland of old Ashkenaz, in 1427. But, as I said, the devastation of the Hussite Wars were followed by waves of expulsions from the rest of the German's lands. Jews were expelled from Endingen in 1470, from Mainz in 1473, from Trent in 1475. In fact, by the end of the 15th century, Mecklenburg, Magdeburg, Salzburg, Nuremberg also had driven out their Jewish populations. And this is just a sampling of the cities in the Holy Roman Empire that expelled their Jewish communities on the eve of the 16th century, almost entirely as results from accusations of ritual murder or host desecration. And the Sefer Maril was carried wherever these Jews went, and it became central to their lives as they rebuilt them, particularly in Poland. And not just because I said 
he faithfully recorded the traditions of their fathers. And trust me that historians, as much as halachicists, look at this book because it's an incredible record of the life of Ashkenaz. He allowed them, through this book, to rebuild a sense of identity, even when that mimetic tradition, that learned tradition in the home, had been disrupted. But ultimately, because of the position he took, it was the Maharil who was largely responsible for putting minhag, custom itself, as a cornerstone of legal decision-making in the new Ashkenaz of Poland, and that is an impact that it has all the way down to today. And I guess in the light of this kind of description, we can get a different grasp of that ultimate expression of Yiddish culture. It's hard to be a Jew. So, the Maharil laid down Minhag as a cornerstone of Polish-Jewish culture, which he, they imported from Ashkenaz. But there's another very important piece of Polish-Jewish culture which will come in his wake, and that, of course, is Torah learning. In the beginning, it's hard to believe, knowing what I know about Polish culture, Torah learning was very weak. But it was Rav Yaakov ben Yosef who brought into being a particularly Polish mode of Torah learning. Now, he was also known as Rav Yaakov Polak, because he's going to be our first rabbinic leader actually born in Poland. And he founds a yeshiva in Krakow shortly after the beginning of the 16th century, and where he pioneers the method of study known as pilpul. Now, pilpul was a study method whose primary intent was to sharpen the mind by raising a question, giving an answer, nullifying the answer with a different question, offering a different solution, raising a new question back and forth. If you've ever seen the movie Fiddler on the Roof. You recall the scene when Tevya, the milkman, is watching two people argue, and one says a point, and Tevya says, you are right. The other one argues against him and says, ah, you are right. And a third person standing on the side says, they can't both be right, and Tevya looks at him and says, ah, you are right as well. Right? This is that essence of Polish Torah culture, of um, an incredible gymnastic ability for learning. And this pilpul quickly took possession of the students. They're electrified by the power and, like I said, gymnastic nature of this new way of learning. The problem lay in the fact that much of their time began to be spent on questions that in reality were not actually questions and answers that weren't so much answers. And so we're going to begin to see, and we will trace going forward, a distinction that's going to be made between the learning of law, halakha, and the learning of Gemara, the Talmud, as an end unto itself, something which will lead to a great age of codification. That lies ahead. And right now, I just want to say a closing word, since we're talking about them, about rabbis and the nature of authority in the coming early modern era. Now, being a rabbi myself, I hesitate to tread on such sacred ground. But having been recorded many times saying that I believe we live at the end of the age of rabbis, it's probably worth it to talk about this turning point in their development. I call it a turning point because you should realize that even though that the Jews brought the Middle Ages really with them from Germany to Poland in many ways, and as the world races ahead into this brave new modern era, it will appear that rabbis in particular are the element of traditional society putting the brakes on this progress. Nevertheless, the times, they are a change in. And we're going to explore the role of the printing press and the early modern knowledge explosion in undermining rabbinic authority in general in the coming episode or two. But for now, one piece of context. You should know that traditionally, throughout history, the office of rabbi was honorary. 
as opposed to being a paid profession. This was largely due to a very strongly held principle that the Torah must be taught for free, and furthermore, that it's forbidden to derive any benefit from judging court cases. Therefore, rabbis always worked, and they served as a service of God, and their authority came from their mastery of the Torah. It's not until the 14th century that we have the first clear evidence a rabbi who received what we would properly call a salary. And I want to be clear, it's not that rabbis were never given gifts, it's not that communities didn't sometimes choose to support, but a salary is a different deal. When Rav Shimon Duran fled from the anti-Jewish riots of Spain in 1391, which I hope you recall, if not, go back and listen to the first series, and he arrives in Algiers in North Africa, the local community deeply wanted him to be their rabbi he pleaded an inability to accept their invitation because he was broke and he had to learn a living. So in order to enable him to accept the position, they worked out a formula where instead of giving him a proper salary, he received what's known as schar batala, meaning a compensation for the loss of the time that he would have had otherwise to make a living, which he was now devoting to his rabbinic office. And in our part of the story, in the wake of the disruptions of Ashkenazi life in the 15th century that I've laid out for you here, at some point, the rabbinic model shifts as well. Rabbis are going to quickly become professionals, and often communities will perceive it as their obligation to support them, whereas it was perceived previously as something forbidden. And the financial and eventually even contractual arrangements that result will give them a measure of security. But at the same time, these decisions will set the stage for the very undermining of rabbinic authority in the face of the wealthy lay leadership who now pays their bills. And so it is to this very day. So I just want to thank a few people. I want to thank everybody who gives their hard-earned money to keep this material flowing out there free and widely distributed. Please join them now. Go to www.patreon.com and find my M Foyer page. Or you can find me at Ralph Mike on Facebook. Or you can send me an email at RalphMikeFoyer at gmail.com and I will send you the good news. I'd also like to thank the folks at the Land of Israel Network for providing such an amazing platform, allowing me to reach people all over the world. I want to thank the Pardes Institute, P-A-R-D-E-S dot org dot I-L, for the opportunity to touch the hearts and minds of so many awesome Jews. And I want to thank you for listening. I'm Rob Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story.